Take a network break. Get a virtual donut and join us for a speed run through this week's tech news. We've got stories on Juniper, Intel, some financial results, and more. We're sponsored today by Nokia and its SR Linux network OS. SR Linux was built with NetOps in mind to let you develop your own apps to help automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. You can find out more at nokia.ly slash srlinux. That's nokia.ly slash srlinux. And stay tuned for a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation with AppNeta. We're going to be talking about enabling distributed work and a new monitoring point from AppNeta that can run on catalyst switches to help you get widespread visibility into application performance. Last but not least, check out the Packet Pushers Human Infrastructure Newsletter. Every week we round up the most interesting tech blogs and news stories from the IT community. We highlight new products and more. You can sign up for free at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Greg, last week we talked about new routing silicon from Cisco. You questioned Cisco's claims about the chip's power efficiency. And we've got an FU from a listener who actually uh, had an RFP going. He was involved in a lab. He says, uh, based on what he saw, the Cisco chip beat all comers in the lab in terms of power efficiency. Yeah, it's a great, uh, great feedback. Thanks so much for sending it in. Really appreciate it. Packetpushers.net slash FU. Send us your follow-up and tell us what you think. Uh, his point was that it's a really power efficient chip, even when put up against a Broadcom equivalent. He doesn't have the power numbers. He can't send us the power numbers for reasons, but he said it especially beats some of the other vendors. Juniper and Nokia numbers were not pretty. And he said one of the shifts that's taking place in the industry is that the label, the power consumption on a lot of routers does not include the optics anymore. So when you get a 24U chassis consuming just 10 kilowatts of power, Optical power doesn't actually matter too much, but in a one-use switch and 70% of the total power consumption is the SFP modules, and particularly optical modules, then it gets a point. So this is great feedback. First of all, uh, knowing that Cisco switches with the silicon one, oh, sorry, the routers, they're actually Cisco right. routers in this yeah. case, because this is in their high-end routing portfolio, and that whole product is actually consuming less power than the competitors is well done. That's good. I'm very pleased about that. I think Cisco's showing good green commitment. We've sort of highlighted that Cisco's making a big deal about its enterprise sustainability and governance type actions, and part of that is being green. And maybe this is a step in that direction, or maybe it's something that customers are asking for. And I think um, maybe I've made a poor job of explaining what I meant by power reductions, which is I wasn't referring so much to a single device consuming less power, but what we see with these types of chips is when they jump from 12 terabits to 25 terabits per second, you can actually use them to replace multiple other devices in your network. So instead of having, you know, an ECMP infrastructure of four, you know, two spines and two leaves or something like that, these types of devices tend to replace multiple routers right. and the power consumption drops on that basis. So maybe I didn't do a good job of that. I think it is interesting, though, that he points out that, yes, sometimes, particularly on a 1U device, you have to be watching the numbers around the optics uh, when you're thinking about power efficiency. Yeah, and this is a really big deal because there's never been a focus on the efficiency of optics or or routers or switches, really, for the last 30 years. Um, and then as the uh, off-prem clouds came up, you know, the mega clouds, they they're actually driven almost exclusively financially by power consumption right. and the, the cost of the power consumption to feed the servers and also the cost to cool them. And so the less power consumed by devices means less thermal energy that has to be cooled and so and so on and so forth. So it is um, going to be very interesting to watch what happens with co-packaged optics. So we do know that Intel, for example, has a silicon photonics and they've done a beta, like an early release version of the barefoot chip with some uh, SFP silicon photonics on board. And there's a whole movement around co-packaged optics, which uses silicon photonics. So instead of having a whole gearbox that comes out of the ASIC and then runs into the SFP, so the SFP is much more of a, uh, a translation. It's a physical signal translation device from optical to electrical. Um, what we'll start to see is the the co-package optics where the optical signal comes out of the ASIC, and that should see a massive drop. So instead of having to have like uh, signal IOs coming out to a ser serial or deserializer, which then goes up to a gearbox, which then runs up to an SFP module, you're going to start to see fiber optic cables coming off the, off the ASIC core directly to the front plate, and we should see a massive drop. So I'll be very interested to see if Cisco's got a co-packaged optics strategy. I haven't, couldn't find anything. I did a quick search, searching for something. That doesn't mean they don't. It just means they haven't released any information. But the fact that Cisco's show, putting efficiency on the map is a good thing. Thanks very much for your follow-up. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, Packetpushers.net slash FU. If you've got a comment, a question, a clarification, a correction, or any other alliterative word that you choose, uh, we love to hear it. So Packetpushers.net slash FU. 
All right, let's dive into the news. Juniper Networks recently held an analyst slash influencer day to share the company's strategic objectives. And Greg, being an analyst influencer yourself, you got to attend and you came away with some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the overall thing here is, you know, we've been talking, I think for a couple of years now, we've been flagging that a lot of the vendors have returned to the enterprise. Remember how we said that for a long time they ran off after chasing after the cloud companies and that was where they, and they beat their chests about making deals with, you know, whichever one of the, of the cloud companies that, they felt was good this week. Yes. And then the cloud companies spurned them and said, like, you know, by and large, we'll do it ourselves. <laughs> you know, like we can use commodity switches for a lot of the volume and we'll just use your specialty products in specialty places. And in some cases, they even buy vendor hardware but run their own operating systems. And so they miss out on a bulk of a revenue. It quickly became obvious that enterprise vendors selling to cloud companies isn't Super profitable, makes revenue, but not super profitable or super valuable. Not, not the companies. revenue they thought it was going to be. And I think Arista in particular realized that the hard way when they had a very bad quarter because one giant customer just didn't order. Yeah, happened to quite a few companies over the time. Um, and then, of course, we've also seen Cisco start to move its hardware, you know, into cloud companies. Again, just selling bare metal. Uh, and that's sort of, you know, fine, whatever. But I think what we're seeing here is that Juniper very much signal a return to the enterprise and the service provider market is still going to be there for them. But I think they're starting to realize that the service providers aren't going to order this year. It's going to be a long, slow. The transition to 5G is not, you know, 2022. Right. It's between now and 2030 <laughs> sort of thing, right? 5G is is not, there's not a massive amount in it. Certainly the, the service providers need to transition to 5G overall because it reduces the cost of their network infrastructure, but they're not going to just wholesale walk through their networks and toss everything out in a massive upgrade process. It's going to be a long, slow burn as it's always been. So, And, and so I felt that the thing, the takeaway I got was that they're very big on the enterprise, which is great because I think lots of people in the enterprise underestimate it. We'll talk about it in the financial results more. But the enterprises are spending a lot of money on infrastructure. Mm -hmm. It's not obvious. Everybody's bloviating about the cloud. But when you poke around about what's happening underneath, there's a lot happening. So Juniper is refocusing itself around the automated WAN, the cloud-ready data center, and the AI-driven enterprise. And the automated WAN, of course, is following the acquisition of 128 technology, the really unusual SD-WAN product that you got. You're a big fan of that, aren't you? I think uh, it's a very interesting product, a very unique product. It... <laughs> If, there's a couple of Tech Field Day videos out there where you'll see us delegates trying to wrap our heads around what they're doing. But yes, they have sort of staked their SD-WAN strategy around 128T. Um, it's interesting that they could also say automated WAN is part of their, you know, contrail business, depending on who you're talking to. So I, I think at least two out of the three buttons on here on this slide that I'm looking at are enterprise focused. Yeah. And the AI driven enterprise, certainly at this point, the missed Wi-Fi product that they brought in, and now they're stretching it out into the campus and they're talking about bringing it to the WAN. And, and then, of course, I, I imagine that eventually they'll get to Appster in the cloud-ready data centers stuff. I like that story. It's coherent. It seems worthwhile. And I actually saw some, like, uh, the, the Juniper executives didn't just stand there and deliver po-faced. Like, one of the things that Juniper quite often does is that people stand on stage and just blah, 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 in a monotone, mm -hmm. and it gets very mm -hmm. tedious. There was actually a little bit of little bit of passion. I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> That's nice. If you're going to speak, make sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty hard to keep somebody's attention for set for 60 minutes. If you're going to do that, don't do it in a monotone. Yes. Um, so, and I also thought they did a good job of exposing the fact that they have a whole bunch of the components already. So they're talking about Paragon automation and adding that in the WAN to one to eight technologies as well as the traditional markets, right? And then to the cloud metro, which I thought was really useful. Because what they're still saying is automating the metro network is a big deal. And then they started to talk more about their connected security. Now, Juniper has had a really tough time uh, with security based on a previous generation of product um, that has, uh, you know, not a good reputation. And Juniper really stumbled there. And it looks to me like what they've done is thrown themselves into uh, testing. So they've taken their, their security products now to cyber, to a range of certification bodies, they talk about cyber ratings, NetSec opened, and NCSA labs. Keep in mind, there's still no official definition for a firewall, so it is whatever you claim it is. Uh, but they're making a big deal about the fact that they're doing more to validate that their security is actually secure, even though in the history of it, they haven't done too well mm -hmm. at all. So I, I came away sort of thinking like Juniper is much more committed to the enterprise than they ever have been. 
And interestingly, the acquisition of AI, you know, MIST and its AI operations thing might have actually given them a substantial jump over the competition here. Yeah, I think we've talked about uh, in the past how Juniper is really essentially building its enterprise fortunes around MIST and that acquisition starting in the wireless land and then moving into uh, the campus. Uh, and then, you know, they'll also talk about Appster for automation and orchestration in the data center. But yeah, uh, that MIST acquisition has been sort of the, the tent pole that's going to bring Juniper into the enterprise and keep them there. Mm. Yeah, it runs with the theme that we have here that day two is more important than day zero and day mm -hmm. one. Pretty much now, all of the products that a customer is going to buy are all the same. Everybody's got an intent-based uh-uh. Everybody's got a SASE-based uh-uh. Everybody's got a you know Wi-Fi solution that's all pretty much coherent. Juniper did announce during the event that their Wi-Fi 6E hardware is now shipping, um, which I thought was unusual in its way uh, because... Uh, I know that the chipsets for Wi-Fi 6E particularly, because all of the Wi-Fi products uh, tend to congregate around, or nearly all products congregate around a single piece of silicon mm -hmm. from some from a mm -hmm. vendor, and that is in very short supply. I've heard stories of up to 200-day lead times on that product. Certainly 100-day lead times is certainly common. So announcing a hardware product and then whether they can ship it, we'll talk more about that down in the financial results. So that's going to be a question on mine. And they also introduced IoT assurance. And this is the idea that it's a recognition that networks are full of IoT devices from Alexas to, you know, X-ray machines in hospitals that have no security whatsoever. Right. And what you need to be able to do is to find a way to manage those in the campus. And those campus networks have to accept the fact that IoT is a fact of life and they aren't going to comply with any of your corporate policies. And now you're going to have to say, going to have to have a different way of saying, oh, I see this as an IoT device and I'm going to have some sort of policy. So they announced IoT Assurance, which is a strange name for a product because it's actually what the product is. And uh, we'll see how that works out as it goes. Yeah, my take on IoT Assurance is that they're saying, you know, uh, a security camera, an X-ray machine, a temperature sensor, you can't put an 802.1x client on it. So if you want to do some kind of access control, some kind of device identification to assign it to some kind of security policy, tag it, uh, you, you can't rely on NAC. So what they're doing is uh, essentially pre-shared keys. It's a cloud-based service using pre-shared keys so that you could uh, associate them, these IoT devices with a particular key, and then attach your policy tags to it. Yeah, which is cool. Although it does feel like catch up because this is something that uh, Aruba certainly has been doing. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yeah, they're they're behind on, <laughs> yeah. on folks like Aruba who have been doing this uh, for quite a while, particularly with that focus on IoT because everyone recognizes that IoT devices are on the network and you've got to do something with them. You need uh, a way to no. identify them, capture that traffic and, and put it into a, a particular VLAN for your policies. Yeah. No. Ethernet attached printers, Ethernet attached photocopiers, you know, right, right. just, but you know, an Alexa may be less of a risk or arguably more, who right. knows, you know, um, and, and there are certain types of executives who think yelling at devices to do their bidding is a big deal. So, you know, you never and know. I just want to come back to your Wi-Fi 6E point uh, that, you know, Juniper announcing maybe before they have a uh, reliable product to ship. Aruba, uh, case in point again, has already announced Wi-Fi 6E. I think other vendors have also announced Wi-Fi 6E. So I think Juniper is just like, we got to get this out of the gate and let folks know, you know, customers are already buying our uh, missed APs that, yes, we're mm. there for 6E, we'll have it, assuming supply chain allows it. Uh, so please don't go buy somebody else's. Yeah. Uh, my point is, don't buy it. <laughs> I don't think it's worth. It. But new spectrum, you know, new spectrum. It, I want the new spectrum. New spectrum and blah blah blah. I mean, there. Sure, some of you, some people will need it, and absolutely you should. But I think that the majority of people should just buy exactly what they need for now, and then plan to refresh more often going forward. Get away from the, you know, once you've got the cables up and everything, it's really easy to replace the APs and work on a, a faster cycling budget. Because um, I suspect there's going to be very significant advances around the antennas and the ASICs. If the if the ASICs can't ship or if there's supply chain, we might see more time for people to redesign them and make them more efficient and to improve them. So we'll see how that works. Right. Runs. We also need to wait for client devices to be uh, 6E compatible as well. So there's that delay uh, to take into consideration too. Yes. A little bit chicken the egg because if right. your APs don't have it, but you don't, you know, like, yes. you know yes. honestly, you're not buying APs for 10 years like we were in the old days. You're buying them for two to three. And the questionable whether your office will actually have, be a viable place, you know, for many companies, people aren't coming to the office to work. And so- I mean, that's an issue for design. If you were worried about congestion on your network, what about when you've got half or a third of the 
capacity of folks in the office to, to, to your existing APs, are they fine now? So that's, I think, another issue yeah. for 6E and in, in, in terms of uptake. Mm-hmm. That's how yeah. I see it. All right, quick break to tell you about our sponsor, Nokia. They want you to know that operating your network isn't enough. You've got to develop for it. Traditionally, NetApp teams have managed data center switches with the CLI or vendor apps or third-party tools and long-in-the-tooth protocols like SNMP. Nokia builds their switches with NetOps in mind. It's SR Linux Network OS in conjunction with Nokia's NetOps Development Kit lets you create your own apps to help automate network design, provisioning, and deployment. You can also use Nokia's Fabric Services System software to automate day zero, day one, and day two, and the beyond of your data center fabric lifecycle. Find out how SR Linux, the NetOps Development Kit, and Fabric Services System can simplify operations in your data center. Go to nokia.ly slash srlinux. That's nokia.ly slash srlinux. And we thank Nokia for being a sponsor. Mm-hmm. Back to the news. Intel and Google are partnering to develop a new class of chip aimed at cloud providers. And Intel calls it an infrastructure processing unit or IPU. It's codenamed Mount Evans. It's a programmable networking chip that's based off of Intel's work on FPGAs and SmartNICs. Essentially, it's like a SmartNIC slash DPU. It's offloading networking, security, and storage. Intel's making a big deal about these storage offload functions from the CPU. And the first version out of the gate supports 200 gigabits per second throughput and can connect up to four Xeon hosts on server. So we've talked a lot about smart NICs and DPUs over, especially recently, as that whole acceleration has come mm-hmm. up. And when Intel announced the the IPU, the Intelligent Processing Unit, we did sort of poke a little bit of fun at it because it could it's just a DPU. It's not anything too much more magical, but they've got to give it its own name. I think, you know, it was NVIDIA, I believe, who coined the DPU term. And so, of course, Intel can't use mm. that. So they've got to come up with their own infrastructure processing unit or IPU, which is, you know, sort of grade school nonsense. Yeah. But there it is. I'd just call them smart nicks. <laughs> oh, they're cringing know. to hear you say it's a smart nick. It's not a smart nick. I know, I know. But, uh, you know, it's a smarter <laughs> nick. How's that? That's really how I see it. Uh, although, you know, the original generations of smart nicks were just ASICs, which would accelerate standard functions. Uh, today, we are looking at something a little bit different. I think there's a couple of things in this where uh, in the press release that I found over on uh, VentureBeat, of all places, um, this ASIC supports many use cases, including vSwitch offload, obviously, you know, accelerating the vSwitch switching functions of firewalls and virtual routing, and also telemetry functions while supporting up to 200 million packet per second and 16 million secure connections. So you've got to be able to route the packets per second, but you've also got to track connection state. So 16 million connections is a yep. lot. But then they went on to say the Mount Evans IPU emulates NVMe devices at very high input and output operate IOPS rates by extending the Intel Optane NVMe controller. Now, a big deal in uh, computers is that reading and writing to storage over NVMe is very intensive and takes up a lot of CPU cycles when you do that. And we're seeing increasingly that there are DPUs that are off, uh, acting as storage acceleration mm-hmm. cards. So there is a company out there called Fungible who used DPUs but just chose to apply it to this problem of accelerating storage, reading, and writing. And indeed, a lot of people are actually using DPUs to build uh, much faster distributed storage arrays. So uh, I think that companies like VMware with products like vSAN and Nutanix with its storage units will be distressed to find that there are companies who can build significantly faster and cheaper storage arrays using the same hardware and whether, so, you know, I, I haven't seen anything yet to suggest that VMware's vSAN can be adapted to take advantage of the acceleration here, because so far, all of the DPU vendors want to add, want to be proprietary. They want to be closed. Mm. They don't want other people using their hardware. And that's why we're hopeful about Intel coming up. Um, so this is moving the debate on DPUs forward to say they're NVMe accelerators, and that's what Google wants from this, particularly for Google because it doesn't want to have hard drives inside the servers. It wants to have the storage remote too, but you want to be able to use NVMe to read and write to the storage because it's much faster than using iSCSI or NFS or some other storage protocol. Getting down right down to the basic uh, primitives of storage, NVMe over the network, NVMe over a fabric is where they want to be. Yeah, and I think Intel is trying to tout this as a competitive differentiator in that it's not just networking and security, it's also storage and we're supporting you know, NVMe and our Optane technology uh, as a way to differentiate from an NVIDIA. Mm. I think it's interesting too. I think Intel could change the way the DPU market looked. We talked about other companies who have proprietary DPUs, 
and they have proprietary software that sits on top and they want to sell the software that runs on top of those, that software platform that they provide that goes with that. And what customers are finding is that when you get those proprietary DPUs, they often don't do what you want. They're not flexible. You can't adapt them to work the way you want. I was talking to somebody who has a, a thousand cards from a well-known DPU uh, platform play and can't use them for anything because they don't work. It's not that they don't work work. It's that they don't work the way that they thought mm. they did. And now they're stuck with several million dollars worth of technology that's dead in the water. Um, so I'm much more of a fan of if you think, you know, it strikes me that if you are thinking that a smart NIC DPU is where you want to be, you want the hardware abstracted from the software because this person's now stuck with a bunch of DPU cards installed inside servers that he can't do anything right. with, a thousand right. of them. So what do you do? Go and take them out so that you're not burning power to keep them on. Opening a thousand servers is not a good day. Right. And this, I mean, aligned, that approach aligns with essentially Intel's general business strategy, which is to sell as many chips as possible. And to do that, you don't try to tie folks to a specific uh, set of software. Hmm. I think so. And so you really want this ability to say, oh, today this card is a DPU with these features. Tomorrow it's a, you know, I, I want to add storage acceleration. Well, that's just a software change, you know, and the features are there or they're right. not. Or, you know, maybe I want to turn it into whatever comes next, you know, a, a root of trust or whatever. Yeah, just a couple of the notes on this. Um, uh, they talk about this being programmable. Intel's using the P4 language for programmability. P4 is an open source language. It came to prominence with the emergence of programmable ASICs in particular, uh, those from uh, Barefoot Networks, which makes the Tofino ASIC, which Intel bought. And now the acquisition of Barefoot Networks makes more sense to me in that I don't know that Intel is necessarily chasing the programmable ASIC market for uh, the network, but more for that expertise in programming general net, general mm. purpose network devices. Well, keep in mind that not only did they buy Barefoot, they then went out and hired people like Nick McEwen right. and a bunch of really well-known people in that programmable people from Big Switch and so right. forth uh, to make this a reality. They're throwing serious money at yep. this. It's not a... That's what makes me inclined to believe that Intel can outcompete any of the smaller venture capital funded players in this space. And certainly will also outcompete Cisco, for example, who's got nothing in this space. Uh, P4 just becomes an API for path programming. Intel obviously has the DPDK, um, network acceleration mm -hmm. functionality. Mm -hmm. And the question now is, is that enough or do we need other APIs? And again, I generally believe that the market will be better served if they're open and universal. Right. So uh, a couple more things. Intel is working with Google as a partner, but obviously Intel wants to make sure that other folks will buy it. So it's not an exclusive deal. It's going to sell to other cloud providers and Intel is going to be competing against NVIDIA, Mellanox, Pensando, Netronome, and others in the SmartNIC slash DPU market. Uh, one other thing, uh, Intel actually made a good overview video with real detail on Mount Evans. There's a link to it in the show notes. And I just want to call that out because often these you know overview videos are just full of marketing fluff, but this one is just six minutes long and it's actually worth your time if you want to find out about Mount Evans. Cool. Right, moving on. The U.S. Federal Communications Commission recently voted to disallow China Telecom from operating in the United States due to concerns over national security. China Telecom America, that's the U.S. subsidiary of China Telecom, has to discontinue services within 60 days. Yeah. As always, when we talk about this type of thing, just a precursor to say we're always staying away from the politics of this situation, but we are follow focusing on the geopolitics. You can't separate the, the political angle away from the impacts of this technology. I think the first thing, of course, is if you are a customer of China Telecom yeah, Americas, you have just a few months to get out and because I think they will be kicked out is basically what the American government is yep. saying. And I think this also stems from last week, we discussed the data collection practices of UK, US telcos. Yes. And there was a report generated by the FCC, which concluded that the ISPs are effectively spying on customers and then selling that information. If you accept that statement, and the FT, the US FTC certainly does, then if you've got a telco operated by a Chinese government, and then as they said in the report, now here's a cracker, Drew, stand by for this, okay. right? Today's order finds that China Telecom Americas, a US subsidiary of a Chinese state-owned enterprise, is subject to exploitation, influence, and control by the Chinese government, and is highly likely to be forced to comply with Chinese government requests without sufficient legal procedures, subject to independent judicial oversight. Mm. That's a pretty blatant statement that it's, the Chinese government is using China Telecom Americas to gather data. That's it, it's absolutely it's pretty clear. That's pretty clear. Yeah. Mm. Uh, the report makes good reading. It's actually written in English. 
I don't know if you've got much time to read it. <laughs> it's always a nice one. It's written in English for English speakers. Yeah, but it's, you know, they give six points, you know, and they are pretty, pretty clear. Uh, there's one here, the, the, I'll give you the third point. China Telecom America's conduct and representations to the commission and other US government agencies demonstrate a lack of candor, trustworthiness, and reliability that erodes the baseline level of trust that the commission and other US government agencies require of telecommunications carriers. All right. So that's pretty big statement as well. And then the final one was in the at the bottom point. It basically said executive branch agencies further support the decision. Uh, what they're saying there is secret services. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. The, the TLA secret service agencies are also behind this. So uh, the long, slow grind, as we've said before about governments, they tend to be slow to move, but when they move, they do big things. So this idea to effectively eject a fully functioning, quite substantial business that has a substantial amount of infrastructure deployed and operates a substantial, they are a major player in the internet backbone, for example, is actually, uh, does take time, but it does happen. And when it does, it has substantial impact. Right. So if you're using any kind of uh, fixed services or broadband services from China Telecom America, you've got essentially 60 days or fewer now to find an alternative. Mm. And equally, when you're doing product evaluations, this is likely, you know, with this sort of momentum built up behind it, this seems likely to continue. So if you are going to make purchases, you don't want to find that the China, that, you know, your government, UK, European, US, whatever, suddenly says that, oh, well, you've been buying this from a, a provider and now we don't want to, you know. Right. <laughs> all those circuits you yeah, spent all that time have- <laughs> setting up and operating, you got to find new ones. Yeah, and I think probably that's part of the intention here from the FCC is to have that chilling effect on uh, U.S. companies working with Chinese-owned companies across the infrastructure space. That's probably a a secondary effect that they're looking to have, I would would assume. I mean, the trend has been obvious for a while. In, but this this statement is very strong um, and quite. Blunt. Although I have to say, it's funny that the FCC is calling out, you know, China Telecom America for not being clear and transparent and untrustworthy. When at the same time, the uh, FTC, the Federal uh, Trade Commission in the U.S., is saying pretty much the same thing about how ISPs communicate with their own American customers about their uh, data collection policy. So it sounds like <laughs> this is a problem that's <laughs> across yes. the board. Maybe one problem is solvable and the other ones are much harder for something yes. I've kept, you yes. know. Yep. We'll see what happens. Yep. All right, moving on. Riverbed Technology, they've announced a financial restructuring deal with their debt holders. So as part of the deal, Riverbed will be, uh, when this deal is concluded, Riverbed will be owned by an investment group led by Apollo Global Management. The company will also get a $100 million cash infusion to help it move forward. Yeah, I think there's a lots of interesting things here is that Riverbed, of course, was a WAN acceleration, a really major player in the WAN acceleration. And of course, we saw here that um, Silverpeak, the main competitor in that space, pivoted actively and turned into an SD-WAN company very rapidly mm-hmm. and went on to be hugely successful, in my view, and obviously enough to be acquired by HPE for a significant price. Um, and yet Riverbed really has failed to to you know, get turned around and to change. And we saw the original founder leave a couple of years ago and then the company tried to readjust and bring in new staff and so forth. They've had uh, at least three attempts at SD-WAN that I know. None of them really got traction. They tried to do an internal re-spin of the WAN acceleration to do SD-WAN, which didn't really take with customers. Then they bought a German company and then shortly afterwards didn't that didn't work. And then they did a a rebranding with Versa Networks where they were buying the SD-WAN product from someone else and then rebadging it as Riverbed and then adding some value on top of that. Um, So uh, to be fair, it feels like they failed so far. Can the company be turned around? I mean, it was taken private by Toma Bravo and they're supposed to be able to do that, aren't they? That's the whole idea behind going private. Yeah, with a private equity firm that they're going to turn you around and bring you back out and that didn't happen. They're just going to a different (laughs) private group. I think it highlights that these sort of private equity buyouts don't always work. So, you know, Toma Bravo tends to have a reputation for making this win. Certainly the new managers, Apollo Global Management is now the majority shareholder. And although it's uh, an investment group led by Apollo, it'll be interesting to see if Riverbed can turn it around and get back into the market. You know, it's it's kind of funny because network performance monitoring, application performance monitoring, those are hot markets right now. And that is an area where Riverbed plays. But I think they're sort of 
in that trap that a lot of tech companies find themselves in where they had a hardware business that was very successful and very profitable and the world was transitioning to software and they didn't couldn't let go of those hardware revenues and now they're finding themselves between that rock and hard place. Certainly seems that way. Uh, it's hard to imagine that they can turn it around at this point. There's so many other SD-WAN companies uh, and there's nowhere to go. You know, what's the exit for them here? Who's going to buy the remnants of Riverbed, even if they can turn around and prove that they've got a viable product strategy? Hard to imagine that there's an exit. All right. Uh, we'll finish up with a quick lightning round of financial roundups. There's a bunch of companies that released uh, financial statements, and we're just going to kind of zip through and see if we can uh, pull out any big trends. <laughs> yes. This is a week when all the technopnies, it feels like it at least, uh, came up. Uh, Fortinet announced their Q3 2021 results. They beat the market by five cents for earnings per share. They also beat on revenue, so on revenue of $867 million. Up 33% year over year. That's pretty good. And (laughs) so that's 30% growth inside of Fortinet. They don't make a lot of acquisitions. So most of that is organic growth. They also beat what the market expected by nearly 55 million. Net income was up, was 163 million up year over year. Uh, Qualys, which is a company you don't hear much about, but I sort of use them as a bit of a benchmark around the security industry. They beat uh, uh, by seven cents a share. They also beat on revenue. They had 104 million in revenue, which is up 12% year over year, beating predictions by 1 million. Arista had a big week this week. They announced uh, a massive increase uh, with a net income of 22.4 million on a revenue of 750 million. That's up 24%, 23.7%, beating the market by 10 million. In particular, the share price of Arista popped largely because they actually increased their gross margins mm-hmm. up a, a, like a 0.3%. They got from 63.9% to 64.2%, um, which is not what people were expecting to hear. And in particular, they told the market that they're not having any supply chain problems. Mm which goes against the story that we've heard mostly. The, the thing that jumped out to me about Arista, aside from that uh, 23%, 24% year-over-year increase in revenue, is the, the the very small gap between their net income and their revenue. So they are very efficiently run because they are taking a third mm. of that revenue and turning it into income. There is a theme sort of coming out here. We'll keep going for a little bit. Um, Extreme Networks also beat. They pulled in $267 million in revenue. Uh, up 13.5% year over year, beating the expectations by 11 million with a gross margin of 58.1%. Uh, so Extreme Networks has had a great quarter. And the last ones, which was positive, I'll put this one in here for a because. Uh, Gartner also beat the market. They're uh, paying out 48 cents a share. They've got revenue of 1.2 billion, which is up 20.6% year over year, beating expectations by 70 million. So it's not... Just, I think, what can you draw from all of this information, which is all of the infrastructure companies in that that we would normally talk about here on Network Break, Fortinet, Qualys, Extreme, Arista, uh, and 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 so forth, are actually doing up ten percent year over year. There's a massive amount of growth here as companies come back, and it wasn't like over the last two years during the pandemic they fell. They didn't shrink during the pandemic. They stayed pretty much the same. They had slow growth. This is like people are coming back and doubling down and spending more than ever. So if anybody says to you that the cloud is the future, you'd have to question that and say, actually, for most companies, they're spending way more money on on on-prem. Now, sure, AWS and Azure and Google are getting fantastic growth, but on my general thesis has been for the last five years is that's new business, not existing business. There's not a lot of enterprises migrating to the cloud substantially. New projects might be going to the cloud but equally, there's a lot more money being spent on existing infrastructure. Yeah, I would like to see more breakdown on where this growth was coming from. I'm curious if it's in, you know, sort of WAN and SD-WAN uh, or in Wi-Fi or where it's actually hitting because they are some mm. pretty phenomenal numbers in a pandemic environment. Yeah, and, you know, as people return to work, they're spending up more money. But this is like everybody's 10, 20, 30% up. Like 40 net to be up 30% year over year is pretty extreme. Right, it's kind of bonkers. Now, it's two... Two red flags. Uh, SolarWinds is having a tough time. Uh, they are down 1.9% year on year, with un- and their revenue is only 181 million in the quarter. They missed their their target by 15 million, um, and they're continuing to fall. The share price has fallen another 20%, and their share price is down 39% year over year. Now, we've talked plenty of times here on the network break about 
security doesn't matter because companies don't suffer. And I sort of tweeted out something like that, you know, should I have to review that statement? Is that wrong? Because SolarWinds, of course, had a massive breach. And somebody tweeted back to me and he said, we've just had three different cyber insurance audits and they all questioned our use of SolarWinds. They also made it clear that we should transition off as soon as we could. Management doesn't even want to hear the name and wants us to look elsewhere for monitoring. So he thinks, would agree with the statement that this time, the damage to SolarWinds as a company and as a brand is actually quite steep. It's interesting that it, that what's tied to that is uh, cyber insurance audits, that if you want to get cyber insurance, that's going to have an effect on the vendors you use, which means going forward, maybe breaches will actually matter. Yeah. It, maybe it's a one-off. <laughs> right. I mean, we've had a string of companies who just shrugged off the problem, yes. but this seems to be systemic. I don't, I think, is there a gap between, you know, company getting breached or an infrastructure? Like, be interesting to see maybe what we need to do is take a look at Kaseya in six months and look back and say, because Kaseya is a supply chain mm -hmm. attack, not a, you know, end user right. attack. Maybe that's where the gap is, but we'll see. Uh, the final red flag was ubiquity. I know a lot of people talk about having ubiquity in their networks. They missed uh, their earnings per share by 50 cents. Uh, having come in with 458 million revenue for the quarter. Just note there how big Ubiquity right. is compared to other companies, yeah. right? So Ubiquity is taking in 450 million a quarter and Extreme Networks is uh, 268 million. It's half the size, give or take a bit, right? right? And yet people rarely look at Ubiquity as a serious networking player, uh, but they missed the target by almost 60 million. So taking in 460 million and missing your revenue target by 60 million, that's a long way yeah. down. So there's got to be some problems there. They proceeded in their press release to blame anybody and everybody but themselves. Sales costs were up, search development costs were up, and then the big one, of course, was the supply chain. They felt that the supply chain was a really big problem for them. So I think the supply chain beat up that we've talked about so far, if you sort of read through all of these, it's a mixed bag. There are some companies that are badly affected by the supply chain and other companies who at this point at least are not. So it's it's un, it's not easy to determine. I also sort of wonder if the supply chain constraint meant that customer uh, vendors could raise their prices and folks didn't really have a choice because everyone was, and maybe that's also contributing to these revenue numbers. Hmm. You know, I'll be look. You know, I guess the best I can do is to make note of that and then start to flag that. You know, is there some other some other signal that we can find inside of there to determine what the future might look right. like, and and see if I can you know make suggestions about what that looks like. And then of course the Gartner numbers are fairly staggering. <laughs> the fact that Gartner's coming in with quarterly revenue of one point two billion—that's just one quarter, one point two billion. They had the best mm -hmm. revenue of every company we just talked about in this segment. So you know, you and I always make fun of the magic quadrant, but wow, I guess uh, who's laughing now? Yeah, and it's across the board, like the whole thing. Cash flows up, you know, the whole the whole and yards. And keep in mind that a lot of Gartner's revenue used to come from conference events, right? Something like twenty-five percent or thirty percent of their business, and they've. That has effectively been poleaxed, but they're still bouncing back around this. That would suggest that uh, IT companies of you know the, P the IT teams or IT executives are turning to Gartner for consulting advice in ever greater numbers and paying much more for it. Uh, so if you actually dig into Gartner's numbers, it's always quite interesting to see how much they make. But the actual um, analysis business is basically is profitable, but it's effectively nothing compared to the consulting business. So companies out there hiring Gartner consultants are hiring a lot of Gartner consultants. Yeah. All right, well, that wraps up the tech news. Uh, stay tuned for our Tech Bytes conversation with AppNetter. We're going to be talking about managing application experience for dis distributed work and their new software that's coming right up. Today on the Tech Bytes podcast, we're diving into the issue of distributed work with sponsor AppNetta. As forecasts vary between a full return to the office and some flavor of permanent distributed work, IT organizations have to figure out how to monitor and manage work from anywhere. AppNetta recently launched a new monitoring point for remote sites that integrates with its full platform so you get visibility into home offices, the campus, the cloud, and more. Our guest is Alec Pinkham, Director of Product Marketing at AppNetta, and we're going to dive in. So... Alec, you know, what are you seeing as some of the challenges that enterprises or your customers are facing as they try to balance this uh, new work from home, distributed work, work from anywhere? Yeah, I think in general, there's still a fair amount of uncertainty around hybrid work. We see the news cycle come back when big companies announce new plans and we're, we're seeing the expected variations based on industry. So manufacturing's back, retail's back, some finance, 
but the big factor is going to be company size and company kind of culture. I think the plan to go back to the office for many people is by and large complete. We've actually seen statistics that say almost, you know, 80% of people are back in the office. And I think when we're looking at what IT is doing for these companies that, you know, they're driving changes, they're not in the driver's seat, but they're the ones that are going to have to deal with any business decision that comes down the pipe. And so the reality is that IT is already working on transformations. They enabled work from home back in the day. They're updating security policies. They're optimizing connectivity now. But I think where we're sitting is that we've been focused on getting IT the information they need from the locations where users are going to sit. And I think that uncertainty of where they're going to sit has been something that's kind of pushed IT a little bit to the brink when they're starting to do strategic planning for the next 12, 18 months. And are you seeing full-time back in the office or is it more we're back in two, three, some mix of days with some still at home or is it we're all back in the office? Majority is going to be a hybrid approach. We're going to have either fewer days in the office or a little bit more flexibility around work from home. I think most of the companies that we're dealing with have a large contingent that's going to be in the office for a smaller amount of time per week. So three or four days per week. I think that's going to be pretty standard, but there are obviously industries that absolutely need to be in the office for longer or just need the uh, resources in the office, right? Manufacturing firms can't just send people home and have uh, work done there. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You can't build a car in your living room. You can try. (laughs) I was thinking about it like this, just the gap between work and the remote work that you can do and the types of jobs that require you to be on premise is actually very wide. Uh, The one I was thinking about recently was hospitals. All of that work, I don't. I think even most of the administrative work is best done on premises, for you know, for the vast majority of of workforces. And you actually got this interesting situation where, if you actually only have a small number off prem, you go back to where we were before the pandemic. But now you've got a problem with how do you make sure that they're all got the same experience? What's that traffic look like? What's the application response time look like? But it gets much worse when, say, eighty percent of your workforce is suddenly away from the office working in a distributed fashion. Maybe that's a coffee shop. Maybe that's a home, you know, using a consumer broadband. Maybe you live in the wrong place. You know, it's a much more diverse problem now. Yeah. And I think that the living in the wrong place is really the biggest one because you don't really think about it when you're at home watching Netflix, but connectivity for business quality, voice calls and things like that is just not there in most uh, rural and definitely some urban environments. So I think the connectivity part is the key issue there. And one of the reasons I asked about what you're seeing in terms of is it full or some hybrid, because I feel like IT did have to invest a lot of time and effort into supporting remote or hybrid work. And you don't want to feel like, well, we're just chucking that in the bin now. Yeah, I think the push to use existing infrastructure has been an interesting one for us. I think it's been a trend throughout the pandemic because without people in the office, it's either the worst or the best time to upgrade, right? You don't get the real world experience, but you do have the ability to change anything, test anything without really impacting business. And I think the transformations you mentioned are really going around focus on connectivity from work from home. So you see VPN upgrades, you see switches to yeah, apps like Teams for companies that never would have done that before the pandemic because they were still on on-prem Skype. And I think that that theme of now we can focus on the office again is an interesting one. And it's maybe not one that IT was totally prepared for because for the past almost two years, they've been told to focus on work from home. So, well, if they are managing this hybrid work, would you, what do you, would you say are sort of the key metrics that IT is going to have to think about going forward, supporting this distributed environment or work from anywhere environment? Yeah. So from the home environment, I think the, the key things to focus on are specifically the home environment itself. So wireless wired connection, how are people connecting? We've seen a lot of customers create policies around, you must be wired or you must have, you know, this kind of connectivity. And I think you know, the, peop- the number of people who have upgraded their wireless routers or home at, or run some Ethernet cable has been astounding because, you know, we had people at the beginning of pandemic who were stealing neighbors Wi-Fi. So we're definitely <laughs> in a better place there. But I think the, the home environment is going to be a very important piece of it. The last mile connectivity and focused on the ISP connection into the home. We had people coming into the pandemic that had no idea what 
you know, what they actually paid for, what their bandwidth allocation was, and then obviously didn't realize that that bandwidth allocation is not up to snuff. We have a lot of connections in the home that, you know, weren't prepared for enterprise level or business level communication. And I think once you get out of the home, out of the last mile ISP, there's a lot more transit networks that we have to deal with that aren't typical office connections, right? You, you know, you either had yeah. direct connections between offices, MPLS back in the day, or even some companies uh, still have that connection. I think there's a lot of thought that has to go into how does the user get to the business critical app, knowing that the business critical app may be in a different spot than it was 12 months ago. And I think the key thing here for me, for AppNetter is, this is you're adding the functionality for the distributed work or the hybrid work, but you're also your core competency is coming from a basis of being in the core network. So you're actually saying, I'm going to monitor both the actual as installed corporate network that you've got today. And I'm going to be able to monitor these distributed work workforce, right? Yeah. Our history has been the end user perspective. And until about 12 to 18 months ago, the end user perspective was typically in the office. And so we had a, you know, an approach for, you know, the end endpoint or the user workstation, but we've spent a lot of time to make sure that's, you know, matching what we had in the office before. So we certainly have focused on making sure that we can figure out how to get the same visibility into the network, into the, you know, wire network that's connection, connecting all these pieces, but make sure that we're also getting that end user perspective, regardless of where the end user might sit in the future of this hybrid work. So that's probably a good time to bring up uh, the new monitoring point that I teased in the beginning. I guess you're calling it the CPE 40. Can you give us more details about it, what it does, where it's sitting? Yeah. So generally CPE 40, customer premise equipment, uh, it's focused on bringing AppNetta's visibility into sites where edge routers are already deployed. And so we're starting with Cisco Catalyst devices, but we're looking into and speaking with customers to figure out what other devices make sense from the CPE perspective. And these devices are already on the network. They're in good locations behind firewalls, close to either where end users are going to sit or at least the VLANs that they're connected to. And we're getting the same visibility across the network from behind those locations to other locations that have these. Because when you have these edge routers out there, they're all already have some kind of interconnection that we can take advantage of to create a good mesh. And this is container software that's actually running on the Catalyst devices, right? It's not something sitting in front or behind. That's correct. So we're using Docker containers, but any Cisco Catalyst device that uh, is licensed to be able to run a container will likely be able to run this. So this idea of actually putting probes in the network has real value from an operational point of view because it accurately me measures uh, what the actual network is doing. like it's, And it doesn't require an edge device to be turned on. Like one of the problems with tools that are installed on people's, say, smartphones or in their computers to do the thing assumes that the computer is turned on all the time. So having a solution that can use this type of in the network as well as the other ways of monitoring the network is really rounds out the portfolio for what use cases that customers have. So, you know, as a network engineer, I might want to have a couple of these around the place. I can drop them on a Cisco Catalyst 9300, 9400, and I can put them there and get those probes running. And then I can also have the edge nodes where I'm on, a, say, a laptop or a desktop and monitoring the network, right? Yeah, exactly. And we know through, you know, just working with our customers, you know, we have both physical and virtual devices but deploying dedicated monitoring hardware can be pretty challenging, right? You either don't have access, physical access to a space or for virtual, you don't have a hypervisor or device to deploy to. You don't have, uh, you know, the ability to work with another team because, you know, we're, we're not siloed, but at the same time, we have our own devices and you can't touch them. So yeah. I think one of the things that we're focusing on is making sure that we can enable this kind of visibility from places where IT already has equipment. And what kind of, uh, what am I getting when I run this container on a catalyst that I wouldn't be getting, say, from already on the logs or whatever telemetry I'm pulling off the Cisco device? Yeah, so from our monitoring points, they're super low overhead testing, basically full monitoring of a path between targets. So we're monitoring between those Cisco Catalyst devices or between a Catalyst device and a cloud device or a workstation, and you're doing full AppNeta monitoring, which is hop-by-hop -hop diagnostic information around what is the capacity of a path, what is the 
you know, the latency, the RTT, all of the kind of standard network metrics that we're, we're used to, um, but now being able to do that from uh, CPE devices. Okay, so if I wanted to get a sense of what kind of uh, application experience a user sitting behind that device might be getting or from site to site or site to application? Yeah, exactly. And I think you hit on a good part, part there where looking out to a lot of these new cloud apps that we've deployed or that we're starting to utilize from locations where either users will sit in the future or users are going to have to transit makes a lot of sense. And is this a, a, a separate GUI? Is it built into the platform overall? Oh, it's it's all it's all part of the same system. I mean, deploying it is you know just as easy as deploying a, a Docker instance. It's you know a couple lines of code that you have to to run uh, to instantiate it. It'll connect up, call home, and you're ready to go. And I know engineers out there are going to be thinking, okay, you want me to run extra software on my business critical router? What what kind of performance impact does it have? These are really light uh, performance impact. I mean, we're not we're not talking a lot of RAM. We're not talking a lot of actual resources from the device. You know, these are devices that are set up to run containers and often are underutilized. So we're util you know we're putting these on a device that uh, could run this already, but is now uh, kind of getting a little bit extra life out of it. Yeah, the Cisco Catalyst actually has a restrictions on what containers can use, and actually allocates a CPU core directly to it, so you can't overrun the rest of the system or something like that. Isn't right. It? Yeah. It's separated. Yeah. So you can't actually cause damage to the main function of the switch by, you know, something going wrong in the containers. I know we're getting to the end of our session here, Alec, but I wanted to ask you something. We talked about this being corporate access and corporate networking, but what about SaaS services like Salesforce and ServiceNow? Can I also probe them and check that they're working well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the SaaS focus is one that we've always wanted to enable. And depending on where these devices are deployed, this could be a great example of, you know, having it as a test from, you know, an office environment or even a data center environment to test some of that transit link. And I think looking at a SaaS solution in general, we can look at both of the actual network path uh, as it's changing, because those are quite dynamic, especially when you get into the cloud environments that host them. But you can also at least do availability and kind of API checking from the SaaS service side. Hmm. That's important, I think, because that's increasingly something that we're doing. I'm looking for the, some of the things I'm looking for in these application and performance monitoring solutions is the breadth of capability now. We've gotten to the point where this market segment is maturing and I want something that covers all of the capabilities in a single product. And that's one of the things I think AppNet is getting together. Well, and I think that's where you see a lot of the popularity around digital experience monitoring when it you know, resurfaced with a new name is focused on that SaaS uh, service and, and what's actually happening on the, the cloud side of it. Because I think mm. people are realizing that the networks that connect them are going to be so dynamic, but the cloud environments are actually way more dynamic than a lot of people initially thought. Well, we are out of time. Alec, thank you for joining us. If folks want to find out more about CPE40 or anything to do with AppNeta, where should they go? I would direct them to appneta.com slash packetbushers. All right, appneta.com slash packetpushers. Thank you, Alec, for joining us. And thanks to Appneta for being a sponsor. Sponsors make what we do here at Packet Pushers possible. If you'd like to find out more about Packet Pushers, we've got many more technical podcasts along with our community blog at packetpushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter at Packet Pushers. Find us on LinkedIn, rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.